Heavenly Father, uh, we have been singing of you, we've been singing to you. And we read, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Um, you are the one who speaks and darkness trembles. You are the one whose beauty demands praise. And so as we um, come to sit under your word now, as we continue to consider what it means to worship you and to be your worshippers, uh, we pray that you help us to do it in humility, in spirit, and in truth. Amen. So we've come to a worship service today. Uh, we had one a couple of months ago, and it looked very different um, to this. The setup was very different. Even to last week, we had a worship service at evening church at the PM service, and it looked very different. And so this kind of begs the question, what makes good worship? Or put differently, perhaps, how should we worship? When good worship is talked about, well, what springs to mind? Maybe it's incredible music led by a talented band and facilitated by a seamless production. Or perhaps it's just a single piano underlaying the chorus of hundreds of voices singing a beautiful old hymn. Or perhaps it's even just a simple instrumental piece with no words required. For each of us, um, the image of good worship looks different perhaps, and even at different times this image of good worship might look different. But under all of that, behind all of that, what is it that makes good worship? What is it in each of those situations that makes the worship good? Is it the emotions, the feelings? Is it the shivers down our spine as the music swells, or when your ears catch a note of the beautiful harmonies being sung? Is good worship just all about positive human experience? I don't think so, and I hope you don't think so either. Um, so what is it then? What makes good worship? What makes worship good? And well, to understand what good worship is, we need to understand, well, why do we worship? Uh, before we know how to worship, we need to know why we do it. And what I want to suggest to you is, strange as it may seem, the passage that we just read, uh, we just read together, it's going to give us into an, an insight into God's why. Um, that is, Isaiah chapter 48, verses 1 to 11, along with many other passages in Scripture, they actually give us God's reason for the things that He does. And if we understand why God does things, hopefully we'll actually get a better sense of why we're called to worship Him. And if we understand why we worship, then we can understand how we worship. Again, if we understand why God does things, we'll understand better why we worship Him. 
and then how to worship him. If you're making notes, um, the headings will appear on the screen as we go. Uh, Let's turn to our passage. Verse 1. Listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah. God is speaking here through the prophet Isaiah, and he's about to condemn the nation of Israel, specifically Judah. Um, Interestingly, uh, Isaiah was actually a contemporary of the prophet Micah, who we've been looking at over the past couple of months. And so it might help to bear in mind what we've learned about the state of Israel um, as we understand our passage today. What does God have to say? Well, let's have a look. Verse 1, you who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. What's happening here is people are swearing by God's name. They stake promises based on the worth of God. I swear by God's name that, but they're failing to uphold them. They show themselves to be deceivers and promise breakers. Verse 2, you who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and claim to rely on the God of Israel, the implication here is they don't. They say they're something, but they're not. They're two-faced. They're hypocrites. Verses 4 to 6. For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago, before they happened. Um, I announced them to you so that you could not say, my images brought them about. My wooden image and metal God ordained them. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? And that last one was perhaps a bit trickier, but it's a bit like this. God has made promises to Israel. And these promises, they have undeniably come through, true, through the action of God. And yet Israel still stubbornly refuses to recognize, refuses to admit that God is the one behind them. They're ungrateful. They're bullheaded. Worse still, they stab God in the back when they say, no, 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 it wasn't you, God, who did this. These gods did it. These gods that I made, that I followed, these are the ones that did these things that you claim to have done. And last of all, in verse 8, well do I know how treacherous you are You were called a rebel from birth. See, all these verses, they're a scathing summary of Israel's relationship to God. They have failed to properly acknowledge Him as their Lord, as their Savior. They're hypocrites who call themselves His people, but fail to revere or obey Him. They failed to recognize him as their protector and as their provider. They're traitors and they're rebels against his rule. And so all of this, it makes them guilty. It makes them more than deserving of complete judgment and destruction, and yet God chooses not to destroy them, at least not completely. Verse 9. 
For my own namesake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you, so as to not destroy you completely. And in case that wasn't clear enough, God actually repeats his emphasis in verse 11 four times. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. See, what's happening here is Israel is more than deserving of judgment, and yet God spares them. Why? Well, it's clear, isn't it? God does it for God. God spares Israel. He saves Israel to uphold his own worth, his own value. And what's, what's he talking about? Wait, why does sparing Israel make God worthy? And why would not sparing them, why would, they, why would that make him less worthy? Why would God be defamed? Why would he be devalued if Israel wasn't spared? Well, Israel was known by the world as God's people. Their existence as a nation was a testimony of God's truth and God's blessing and God's worth and glory. Israel's existence was meant to point the world to God's worthiness. And so what if they were destroyed? What if they were cut off? Well, what would happen to God? Well, what would happen? It would lead to a defamation of God's name. It would lead to people thinking he's not as great as he said he would be. His worthiness before others, his glory would be compromised. Imagine the other nations, knowing what sort of God Israel claimed to follow, when they saw or destroyed Israel, what would their response be? Hey, Israel, wasn't, wasn't their God meant to protect them? Wasn't he the one that claimed to look after them? Didn't he promise to bless and protect them? Well, I, I guess he mustn't have been that great after all, right? I'm glad we didn't trust that God. Look what would have happened to us. And God could not let that happen. His name could not be slandered in such a way. His worth cannot be devoured. His glory will not be undermined. God saves Israel so that the worthiness of his name could be upheld. And if this talk of the worth and value of God's name seems a little abstract, seems a little far from home, well, consider for a moment. We do the same thing, don't we? A colleague badmouths you at work to your boss, and your reputation is now at stake. What do you do? You defend your integrity. Your name is at stake. A petty customer leaves a poor review of your business. What do you do? You address it quickly. You work it out because your name, the name of your business, it is at stake. Or perhaps your child is getting harassed and bullied at school and that breaks your heart and fuels your anger because no one 
No one has the right to tell them that they're not good enough. No one has the right to tell them that they're not worthy. No one has the right to take away their self-worth. See, we understand the value of a name, and we understand the worth of a person, even people other than ourselves. But do we truly understand the value and the worth of God? Have we started to grasp how important the reputation of God's name is? We who are so quick to defend our own worth and to express perhaps even our worth to others, how quick are we to defend and express the worth of a God who is far, far more worthy than we are. More on that later. But let's just quickly address another question that may have come to mind. Um, The question of God's motive for saving Israel to uphold his own worth. Um, Some of us are perhaps okay with that. Uh, while others may have a bit more of an issue. Perhaps it doesn't quite sit right that God's own motivation in saving Israel is himself, his own name for his own praise. That seems a little selfish and self-centered, doesn't it? I mean, after all, God calls Christians to be humble, to consider others' needs above our own, to avoid self-exaltation. It seems wrong that God does the opposite. I mean, we're mostly okay that, you know, yeah, God's done great things. We can praise Him for what He's done. But for God Himself to actively seek praise, for His praise to be the reason why He does what He does, seems a little off sometimes. Well, to help us deal with this question, we're going to quickly flick through two passages, Psalm 23 and Ephesians 1, and they'll appear on the screen as we go. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet water. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his namesake. Ephesians 1, verse 5 to 6. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12. In order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ, in order that we might be for the praise of His glory. And verse 14. Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. See, there are two things that are clear from all these passages. Firstly, these passages affirm in a resoundingly clear manner that God does do things for His name and for His glory. God protects, God guides, God refreshes, He predestines, chooses, adopts, assures. Why? For His namesake, for the praise of His glory. 
But secondly, and perhaps most incredibly, in all of these instances of God doing things to uphold himself, what's the result? The result is people are blessed. God's self-centeredness is different from our self-centeredness. See, when people are selfish and act in their own interests, the result is cruelty, injustice, and indifference. We've seen that in Micah. We don't like people who work for selfish motives because we get hurt by them. When individuals exalt themselves above all others, it's often the case that those others get crushed as a result. But when God, when He exalts Himself, when God does things for His name's sake so that His glory may be praised, the result is protection, guidance, refreshment, predestination, adoption, assurance of salvation. Rebels are forgiven. Traitors are spared. And people, even us, get saved. And so what have we seen so far? We've looked at God's why. We've looked at God's reason for doing, and we see that it's to uphold the supreme value of His name. His name is supremely valuable, and He vigorously defends its worth. And actually, that's a really, really good thing. Because when God affirms His worth, we're blessed. We find joy. And knowing that, we're left with our initial question. How should we worship? See, God's worth is beyond our comprehension. Upholding the value of God's name, therefore... It's the highest priority. It's his highest priority. It's his reason for doing. And so should be ours as well. See, I spoke earlier about how all of us, we recognize the value of a name, the worth of a reputation. And by also challenged us to think, do we truly recognize the value of God? And does our worship, does the way we worship, the way we present ourselves before Him, does that affirm, does that even begin to communicate a sense of this God's supreme worth? This is the God who spoke the universe into being and at the same time tenderly knits the child together in their mother's womb. This is the God who breathed life into dust and it awoke and came to life. The God who's struck down the firstborn of Egypt, split the seas, whose wrath shakes mountains and melts hills before him, whose voice causes rulers and nations and darkness to tremble. And this is the God who would die for worthless sinners, who would lay down his life so that enemies would become worshippers that rebels would become sons and daughters. This is a God who is blessed and worthy, not just because of what he's done, but because of who he is. So how should we worship? 
We need to worship in a way that upholds the immense value of this God, of our God. Our praise must truly reflect the value of His name, because anything less would be an affront to its worth. Good worship is worship that upholds His worth. And so what does this look like? What does it look like to uphold God's worth when we worship? Well, it's worth stopping to think for a moment. What's your motivation? What's your motivation as you come here today and sing praise? As you stood up and sang, what drove you to do it? Is it because you know God? You're growing to understand more of who He is. And more and more, you get a sense of His immense worth that you cannot help but to declare the praises of? Or is it because the music was good, the production was seamless, and we're in a positive mood today? If that's all, isn't that an insult to God's worth? That we only think or feel that God is worthy of worship when we're in a good mood? To be clear, right, I'm not saying that music doesn't matter, that our context doesn't matter, but I am challenging us to think, what is our primary driver as we come to worship? And more than that, I've been talking about worship through song, in church specifically, but hopefully we know that worship is so much more than that. Romans 12 tells us that the way we live our lives every day is an act of worship. Our lives, the way we live out our faith, should speak volumes about the worth of our God. So does your life do that? When others look on your life, and specifically your Christian walk, are they pointed to a good God of immeasurable worth? Or do your words and actions end up devaluing him before others, defaming him. When you make hard choices to live humbly, to give generously, to show mercy, do we affirm his worth by having an attitude that says, yes, I can do this joyfully and peacefully because God is enough and he is good and he is great? Or do we end up cursing his name by doing it in bitterness and resentment that goes, why God makes me do this? This is just what Christians are expected to do, so I put up with it. When we discipline ourselves to read scripture, when we make time for Bible study and church and meeting up with other fellow Christians for Hospitality Sunday, do we affirm God's worth with an attitude that delights in seeking Him, that delights in spending time and investing into His children, into His family? Or do we challenge His will and His worth by lamenting time lost that we believe could have been spent more productively elsewhere? Or perhaps even more subtly, do we affirm his worth in all situations? Are we content to praise him and honor him simply because of who he is, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves to be in? Or do we only feel primed to worship, to praise, to honor him when we're feeling blessed?
If that's us, the danger is that we end up communicating that God is only good because of how good he is to humans. We say that, oh, God's worth is tied into how people are treated, and we fail to recognize that he's worthy of praise simply for who he is. And we end up dishonoring and devaluing him. We fail to recognize that his worth is independent of our worth. God's worth is not attached to how well we are treated. He is worthy simply for who he is. And so does your life. Does your worship reflect that truth? That God is so good, that his worth is so great, that you praise him and affirm his value regardless of your situation. And if it doesn't, maybe what we need to pray for is a greater sense of, a greater understanding of who he is. We need to pray that we might know him more. And so how do we conclude? We started by asking, what makes good worship? How do we worship? And what we've seen is God is infinitely worthy. And we've seen that good worship upholds that worth. And we've been challenged, what does that look like? Both here, as we stand and sing and praise today, but also, more importantly, as we live lives of worship in the everyday. In everything, all that we do, our worthy God's name must be held supreme. This is how we worship. Amen.